Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. Burke Dennings is a Hollywood director known for being a relatively nice guy. Until he gets drunk. Then it's anyone's guess which version of Burke Denning you might get. From screaming to vulgar language to property damage, Burke Dennings leaned into the forgiveness extended to creative-minded men in the 1970s to engage in whatever his ego told him it wanted to do. And when Burke Dennings ends up dead... Georgetown police have no shortage of suspects that may have wanted him that way. But motive and opportunity are two separate things. And while the details of Denning's death make an accident unlikely, the circumstances surrounding his death make murder seem near impossible. Because at the time of his death, Burke Dennings had gone to the home of his star actress Chris McNeil. The only person home at the time was her young daughter Reagan, who was stuck in bed with an illness doctors had yet to successfully diagnose. Reagan is the only person with the opportunity to have murdered Burke Dennings. But there's no way this young girl had the means to perform what was, by all recorded accounts, an intensely physical murder, requiring a strength even most grown men wouldn't have possessed. So how did Burke Dennings end up dead? And what role did Reagan McNeil play in it? I'm Risa P, and this is the murder of Burke Dennings, or as it's more commonly known, the possession of Reagan McNeil. The body of Burke Dennings was found on the pavement outside of Chris and Reagan McNeil's home. He'd gone over there to discuss something with actress Chris, who was starring in the movie he was about to wrap up directing on the campus of Georgetown University. When he arrived, no one was present in the home except Chris's daughter Reagan, and most people quickly assumed his death was an accident, that his drinking had finally gotten the better of him except for the detective who had been put on the case, because the injuries to Denning's body were intense. He would have had to fall from 30 or 40 feet to sustain the kind of injuries his body was presenting. Not just a drunken stumble down the front steps where he hit his head. And most disturbing, Denning's head had been turned around 180 degrees something that the medical examiner said would be possible from a fall only if there were some kind of obstruction, and even then, the likelihood of this happening accidentally was very slim. But the likelihood of Reagan, a young, sick, and not particularly large girl, 
could have had the strength to do something like that to Dennings was even slimmer. But as the investigation into Burke Dennings' death continues, Reagan becomes the only suspect. And as Reagan's illness continues to progress, it becomes clear that her affliction is one that will require more than just medical treatment. Reagan's affliction first appeared to be psychosomatic. She would smell something awful that no one else could, she had trouble sleeping, and she started talking to an imaginary friend. And then she began to have a fascination with death, the afterlife, and religion, in spite of her mother being an atheist who had never introduced her to any of these concepts. But luckily for Reagan, Chris is a woman of both means and connections, and she's able to get her daughter immediate help. But the doctors she takes Reagan to really aren't as much help as she would hope. As Reagan's symptoms begin to progress into the more physical, she starts exhibiting uncharacteristic use of profanity and hypersexuality. They seem to think it's just her reaction to her parents' divorce and her perceived abandonment by her father. Essentially, it's all in her head. But then Chris finds a Ouija board in Reagan's room, and Reagan tells her about her friend, Captain Howdy, who she's been using the Ouija board to communicate with. When Chris brings this up to the doctors, they send Reagan to a specialist who puts her under hypnosis and is able to communicate with Captain Howdy, who at this point they assume is some kind of multiple personality, disassociative identity disorder, something that is a part of Reagan, not a separate entity. But the responses they get back are disturbing. Most notably, that whatever Captain Howdy is, he hates Reagan, and his goal is to bring her to serious harm. Again, all the medical professionals write this off as a trauma response to the divorce of her parents and a young girl suffering from feelings of abandonment. But whatever Chris tries, Reagan seems to be getting more and more lost in this split identity. And because of this new fascination with death and religion, and the uselessness of medical interventions up to this point, it's suggested that Chris gets Reagan to see a priest. There are Jesuits all over the Georgetown campus, so finding one isn't going to be difficult. In fact, Chris already knows a Jesuit on the Georgetown campus, and she implores Father Damien Karras, who also happens to be a clinical psychiatrist, to look at her daughter. What's unknown at that time is Father Karras is going through his own crisis of faith. And so for him, it's easier to see what's going on with Reagan as a medical or psychological problem. He even writes off things like her ability to know and speak multiple languages, including German, Latin, Greek, and Russian, or move objects with her mind, like dresser drawers or the bed, and her new impossible strength, a psychological phenomenon that all have their explanation in what we would consider today 
outlandish and debunked hysterical psychological phenomenon. Even when, in her altered state, Reagan's other personality claims to be a demon, and one that knows specific and personal details about Father Karras's personal life, Karras refuses to see the need for the church to be involved and implores Chris to get her daughter back to medical professionals who can look after her physical well-being. But these medical professionals can do nothing for Reagan other than tell Chris there's something very wrong with her. And at this point, it's not just Reagan's mental health that's suffering. She's stopped eating and her body is thin and gaunt. She's covered in lacerations, scratches, and sores. And now she's starting to smell. Her whole room smells of rot and decay. And this time it's not just in Reagan's mind. And at the same time all of this is going on with Reagan, the investigation into the murder of Burke Dennings has hit a wall. Police were confident the only person in the McNeil household physically capable of committing the murder was the McNeil's houseman. He was the only member of the household who lied about his alibi. He's large, strong, the only person who could have been capable of inflicting that kind of damage to another grown man. But after investigators follow him, they realize he lied about his alibi to cover up for the fact that he was going to visit his daughter, a young woman suffering from drug addiction, whose mother believes that she is already dead, while her father has secretly been visiting her and bringing her money to get by. The daughter confirms her father's alibi, and while the McNeil's houseman might be in trouble with his wife, he's not a murderer. And that leaves Chris to suspect what no one else has been willing to speak aloud. That Reagan, the only person in the house when Burke Dennings was shoved from the second floor window with enough force that his head was turned around on his neck, must have had something to do with his death. Finally, Father Karras is convinced that it is time for Reagan to see an exorcist. While he is still unsure of the existence of God, and therefore the existence of a truly supernatural entity possessing the young girl and using her to commit violent and vile acts, he does believe Reagan may benefit from the rite of exorcism anyway. If what Reagan is experiencing has been brought on by suggestion, a book on witchcraft that covers demon possession was found under her bed shortly after she began experiencing symptoms. It's possible that the suggestion of a cure could bring her back to herself. And so Father Karras goes to his bishop for approval, and the bishop calls in Father Lancaster Marin, an experienced Jesuit exorcist who has just returned from an archaeological dig in the Middle East and is currently on assignment in Woodstock, New York. And this is where things begin to take a turn. The other entity, or personality, inside Reagan hates Father Marin, and as soon as he arrives in the house, the explosive language and behavior begins to ramp up. In fact, the presumed demon in Reagan seems to think it's a competition between itself and Father Marin. Whoever gets the girl, wins. For Father Marin's part, 
By all accounts, he remains calm, only engaging the demon Reagan to ask questions and to pray. But even these efforts don't seem to be enough. At one point, Reagan's head begins to rotate around her neck, similar to the phenomenon seen on Burke Denning's corpse. The girl gets violently sick while her heart rate reaches dangerous levels. In fact, Reagan is now at risk for death because of the high sustained heart rate and her lack of sleep. After hours of sustained prayers and attempts at freeing Reagan, Father Marin tells everyone else in the room, including Father Karras, to leave and rest while he stays in the room with the demon. But Father Marin himself is suffering from a heart condition and succumbs to a massive cardiac event, leaving Father Karras as the only one who can save Reagan. Not knowing what else to do, and not being a proficient exorcist himself, Father Karras taunts the demon and tells it to come into him instead. A Jesuit would be a better prize for a presumed demon anyway. And once possessed, Father Karras throws himself from the bay window in Reagan's room, taking the demon personality with him and freeing Reagan. Now, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about the so-called possession of Reagan McNeil and the death of director Burke Dennings, along with the death of Father Karras, the supposed sacrifice, suicide, really depends on whether or not Reagan was truly possessed by a supernatural entity. And while the Jesuits involved with the case seem to believe it was a true case of full body possession, these cases are rare and becoming rarer still with the advances in medical science that can better screen, diagnose, and treat natural mental illnesses. And every symptom Reagan showed could be traced back to psychological disorders, although rare and uncommon ones. And even Father Karras himself seemed to be showing signs of some kind of psychological trauma tying back to the recent death of his mother that left him looking at opportunities to leave his position at Georgetown University, as well as suffering from severe hypervisual dreams of the demonic, as well as the paranoia that came with them. So was Reagan truly possessed by a demon? Or was this simply a case of mental illness and group hysteria that infected the priests exposed to her? At this time, that still remains a matter of faith. But as for the official case of the suspicious death of Burke Dennings, that case was quietly closed by the detective working it, who, when pressed, would admit that Reagan did seem to be the only possible, however unlikely, suspect. But who could accuse a 12-year-old girl of the brutal murder of a grown man? 
and what jury could hear the case with all its strange details and still convict her. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. Today's episode was based on the book The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. This is the third book about possession I've read in the last few months. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll probably also remember The History of Fear and The Puzzle Master. But when it comes to horror novels about demonic possession, The Exorcist is really the groundbreaker. By today's horror standards, it's not as extreme of a novel as it was considered when it was first published in the 1970s, but it is still a disturbing one. If you've read it and want to talk about it, come join the Goodreads book club or grab discussion questions for your own real-world book clubs. You can keep in touch between episodes by emailing me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com or by following me on Instagram at the Stay at Home Creative. All those links can be found below in the show notes. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, or share it with a friend. Thank you again for listening, happy Halloween, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. At Salvis, Mr. Wee.